There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. If you're in a boat ramp and dude pulls in with salt life all over his stuff, like he's probably the one that's going to put his truck in the water. You spineless dingus. We're going to flip a coin and there are two options. They actually retrofitted pool cues, like real pool cues, with real seats and guides to use as musky rods. Did you get it on the J-hook? But no, we cannot adopt a whale's catfish. Good morning, degenerate anglers. Welcome to Bent, the fishing show that buys Dariki hooks from the Wish app. Because really, do we seem like the kind of guys who can afford Daiichi hooks at the fly shop? <laughs> no. Come on. I'm Joe Cermelli. And I'm Miles Nolte. All right. So a few weeks ago, we made a joke at the expense of Rent-A-Cops. And Ooh, we did, I had, didn't we? <laughs> I had no idea how sensitive a subject we were touching on. So to all the private security professionals out there, who took offense, please accept our heartfelt hope that you can find your senses of humor. (laughs) Little trivia fact for you. I used to work as a retail security guard. Yes, I was once a -a rent-a-cop. And even though I was very, very bad at that job because I could not have cared less how many Beastie Boys CDs disappeared into (laughs) Jansport backpacks, I've earned the right to make rent-a-cop jokes. If your daily grind involves sitting in a tiny little box handing out vendor badges and making regular patrols around the sales floor looking for people to profile, you can absorb a little good-natured <laughs> shit talk. Dude, it's weird, but I can picture you in that role in your younger days, like just not giving a shit about anything. None. Just 18 like, years old, yeah. ponytail halfway down my back. It was a job. In general, though, I, I will say, um, I think people's like waning lack of ability to make fun of themselves is just a growing global problem. Like just in, yeah. in all facets, like we yeah. like people, you know, I make fun of myself constantly. 
Me too. I'm wonder, like wondering how I've gotten this far in life. But uh, yeah, man, I'm with that. If you're a mall security guard or toll booth operator, or the, the the kid that rounds up the golf balls at the driving range, you know, a fishing industry professional, three words that do not belong together. Like, do yourself no. a favor, laugh at yourself. It's okay. Nothing yes. bad's gonna happen. You might enjoy it. So no, we're all ridiculous. Apologies, but it's kind of like a sorry, not sorry. You know no, what I mean? I'm. We make fun of ourselves all the time, and for good reason. We deserve it. Yes. Uh, that said, I do have empathy for security guards. Like that, truthfully, yeah. that is the most boring job <laughs> I've ever had. And and to make things worse, break room coffee is terrible. Mm-hmm. It is it mm-hmm. is absolutely nothing like the black rifle coffee that I'm currently enjoying. I'm a medium roast kind of guy, and their coffee saves variety is exactly what I need right now. But it's not just a clever name. <laughs> Lately, the missus and I have been hot on their just black. And tell you what, I'm not really a black coffee drinker. You know, I'm the weenie that fills half the mug with the Snickers flavored coffee mate first, you know, (laughs) Uh, it's just me. I'm just me being me. But uh, the Jess Black is truly perfect drank Jess Black. And a little reminder that this podcast is entirely fueled by Black Rifle Coffee. Black Rifle Coffee Club keeps members fully stocked with premium fresh beans delivered right to their doors. And they support all the folks who support us, military veterans, first responders, firefighters, and healthcare workers, so you can feel good about giving them your hard-earned money. Head on over to blackriflecoffee.com backslash meat eater, and uh, they will take care of all your coffee needs. Use the code meat eater at checkout, and they'll even hook you up with 20% off your order. Yeah, and uh, that coffee's also been fueling hours of cold calling and emailing Miles and I have been doing lately to, uh, you know, talent agencies... And managers trying to trying to con our way into getting some some new fresh guests on this show whose whose voices may sound more familiar. Like we hang out with fishy people, but we're like, you know, who who would resonate with the masses beyond the fish world? It's not easy. It's not easy. No, and and let's be clear: the operative word there is con. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> somehow it worked. Kind of. I don't know how to put this. We don't have an actual fishing report for you this week because no. I mean, all right, look, we got Brad Pitt to record something for us, and we're not really in a position to tell Brad Pitt what to do. We didn't even get to talk to Brad. They no. wouldn't let us speak to Brad. Um, not that I, per- I mean, you know, that's that's fine, but uh, yeah. this all went through his people. He's got people. So instead of a fishing report, we got, uh, I don't know, what do you what do you call this? I don't really know what I'm uh, what I'm really introducing, except I'll just say, uh, here's Brad Pitt, ladies and gentlemen, on the Bent Podcast. You go ahead and enjoy this one. Hey, 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 hi, uh, Brad here. So someone asked me to do this podcast, and I was like, "Bow, what's a podcast?" And also, who the hell are these guys? But when I found out it was about fishing, right, I was like, can I share my words? And they were like, yeah, you can do whatever you want to do. So I'm really into fishing poetry. Not so much fishing or poetry, but fishing poetry. You know, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, here are some poems that I wrote. Chasing eternal rises. Pain. Elation. Euphoria. Desperation. The rusted pull tab from a can of metaphorical kombucha. The smell of summer in the streets of New Delhi. 
a half a pack of Winston's. Two girls you swear you've met before, but you can't remember if it was at Luke's or Owen's. Winter in Toledo. A tape measure your dad let you borrow and you never gave back. Sagebrush. Big palm trees at a TGI Fridays in Juarez. Bottomless steak fries. A moped that will take you anywhere you want to go. If you have the free map. A fear of garden sprinklers your therapist hasn't been able to resolve. Something kind of like a small carry-on bag. Only larger. Trout. Thank you. This next one was inspired by some of my, you know, yeah, complicated relationships. Hanging out with Guy Ritchie and Madonna in the UK filming Snatch. Suckerfish. Who are you calling sucker? Fish. Broadcast spawners spreading seed. Subterminal lips blowing Botox bubbles. Criminal carp casting contentious characters. Past that roach. Did you get it on a J-hook? No. No. We cannot adopt a whale's catfish. They need to swim free. Look, like me. That was it. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> I humbly thank you for listening. Never forget the words of the immortal Floyd. They were here. And then they were going to go there. And then they went. I, I I gotta say that that first poem wasn't bad. <laughs> you think so? You think yeah. that was good? I mean, yeah. I I don't know. I dig poetry when it's well done. You know, I can get down with some of that like free association imagery he had going on there. I I in fact, you know what? I think we should do more poetry on the show. Maybe we should start a segment called Poems That Don't Suck. Oh, can it, can it be a haiku? See, I like haikus. It's just like short and sweet. It takes two seconds to read. I don't have to get lost in that, you know? Um, uh, and it's just you saying that for the kids paying attention, I, I fear that's a, that's called foreshadowing. So if we do end up airing more poetry, I'm going to assume some listeners will love it while others absolutely hate it and send us, you know, yet another slew of emails asking us to never do that again. Um, we'll see. I'd end up reading some Shel Silverstein, you know, saddest thing I ever did see was a woodpecker pecking at a plastic tree. Looked at me and friend says he, things ain't as sweet as they used to be. <laughs> that's, that's about where poetry stops for me, man. Oh, Shel Silverstein is, is, was a genius. That's all I'm going to say. And, and I'll also admit that poetry is polarizing. Either you enjoy it or you just completely hate the whole idea of it. And for those of you in the latter camp, I blame your high school English teachers, but I'm going to stick with the theme of polarized opinions here. Uh, it's time for Fin Clips, where we tell you everything you never wanted to know about a fish you may or may not have heard of. This week, Joe's going to deep dive into a trout subspecies about which anglers are staunchly divided. Say the word tiger trout to a devout trout angler, and you often get one of two responses. Said angler is often enthralled by tiger trout, considering them a rare prize, if not somewhat of a badge of honor to have plucked a tiger or two from local waters over the course of their fishing careers. Or you get disdain, because it's believed that tigers are simply Frankenstein hatchery creations that don't really belong anywhere, and they're so ravenous and dumb that it takes no skill whatsoever to catch one. Both of these responses are fair and at least partially accurate. A tiger trout is a hybrid, 
It's a cross between a brook trout and a brown trout, and the result of this genetic mashup is a fish with a deep brown or olivey back, fiery orange belly, and a body full of swirling gold striation marks that, you guessed it, look kind of like tiger stripes. And like all hybrids, including the tiger muskie, tiger trout are sterile. Many states include tigers in their trout stocking programs, as creating them in a hatchery is relatively easy. Now, according to my research, brown trout have 80 chromosomes and brook trout have 84. So, in the process of tiger making, brown trout eggs are fertilized with brook trout milk and then heat shocked, which causes the creation of an extra set of chromosomes, thus increasing the survival rate of that batch of tigers from 5% all the way up to 85%. The final result is a trout that grows more quickly than other species, tends to be more aggressive than other species, and is generally hardier and more tolerant of environmental factors that regular old brooks, browns, and rainbows might not dig so much. That hardiness I've actually witnessed with my own eyes, right? I live right on the lower Delaware River, which creates the border between New Jersey and Pennsylvania. And while the upper reaches of this river, nearly 300 miles away, provide some of the best wild brown trout fishing in the country, the vast majority of the Delaware is far too warm to support trout. However, there are countless stock streams that drain into the main stem along those 300 miles. So it's not super rare for a lucky smallmouth shad or striper angler to pull the occasional Occasional wayward trout from the low end. And guess what? 99% of the time, when they do, it's a tiger. I've seen reports of tigers caught as far south as Philadelphia in the sludgy, cargo ship laden tidal water, which tells me, yeah, tigers are tougher than your average trout. While the vast majority of tiger trout that people catch ended up wherever they caught them because of this big science experiment, tiger trout do occur naturally in the wild, though it is incredibly rare. And since, at least from what I gather, it mostly happens in small streams, you're not likely to stumble into a 20-pound, 13-ounce tiger trout like Peter Friedland did on Lake Michigan in 1978 to claim the IGFA world record. In fact, I have a distinct recollection of a framed tiger trout photo hanging in a tiny fly shop on Slate Run in North Central PA. It was only about six inches long, cradled lovingly in a pair of cupped hands, and the owner told me it's the only wild tiger he'd ever seen or heard of in all his years fishing this famed wild trout stream. If, perchance, you happen to be one of those trout fishermen that make it a life goal to catch as many species of wild trout as possible, you can increase your odds of scratching off wild tiger trout by heading to Wisconsin. According to the interwebs, and I quote, Wisconsin currently has no stocking program for tiger trout, but the hybrids show up naturally in the state's small streams, in particular in the Driftless area, as brook trout populations have rebounded. Incidences of tiger trout have improved from exceedingly rare to a bit better than rare. Now, as for their I'll-eat-anything-that-moves aggression, I've personally never witnessed that, though I've also never fished any lakes or rivers with an abundance of tigers. However, on my wall, there is a beautiful wood carving of a fat 20-inch tiger with its full colors blazing. And to date, it is the only trout I've ever had eat a mouse fly in broad daylight on my beloved Upper Delaware River. Now, maybe that was because I just made, like, the perfect presentation, man. Or maybe it was the only trout in the run dumb and aggressive enough to make that move before nightfall. Frankly, I don't care. It was a fabulous take akin to a great white smashing a seal. 
So I sit squarely in the Tigers are super cool camp, and that mouse eater is definitely one of my most memorable catches. Still never caught a tiger trout, Joe. I know why, right? Because you fish for wild trout in wild places. Like you, you don't view catching a giant orange rainbow trout that 10 people are bombarding with spinners and eggs and shit as like a rite of trout fishing passage, you know? Nobody yeah. needs to supplement Montana waters with freaks of nature to make people feel like their trout stamp money is being well spent. You don't even have a trout stamp. Do you know what a trout no. stamp? You know what a trout stamp I, is. I know what a trout stamp is. I have purchased them elsewhere. But, you know, <laughs> like, despite all of that, like, it's not like I'm stuck up about it. I know that there is this holier than though attitude about wild trout, not wild trout. And I just don't buy into all that. I have no beef with Palomino trout or tiger trout or any other weird fish at all. Like, I don't hold myself above any yeah. of those kinds of yeah. fishing. I, I'm down to do that. The problem is that there are just too many species and not enough time. Yeah. There are so many interesting fish out there that I just I just want to harass for my own entertainment. Yeah, it's a constant problem. And, like, I, I could travel to chase new fish or I could stay local and, you know, spend less time on the road. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, man, it's like we're just lucky to have options. And uh, you have options, too, listeners. You could get your fish news from anywhere. But you choose to get it here at the number one source for fish news, and we appreciate that. Fish news! That escalated quickly. Okay, so before we get into news, uh, this has kind of become our space for housekeeping. And uh, I think Miles and I have to say thank you to you guys because due to your overwhelming support in the awkward fishing photos arena, we will not have to make fun of our own fishing photos for a good long while. No. And I, just I mean, we say- were worried when we started that out. Like, <laughs> is this just going to be us making fun of each other in perpetuity? But no, you have given us a gold mine. Yes. And, and in, in collecting these and looking through them, uh, milk has been shot out of noses. Okay. And we, we love you guys for that. And just wanted to give you guys a heads up that starting in just a few episodes down the road, we will press on with awkward moments in, in, in angling fueled entirely by you guys. Okay. So now the big question though is, is which one of you will be fan victim number one? And unfortunately right now it's just too early to call. It's, we don't it's, know. It's just too close. As they the, say, the goods are still coming in. <laughs> We're uh, apparently waiting on a few photos to come in from a handful of you that said you had shots incorporating full frontal nudity, friends crying hysterically in Teletubby costumes. So we appreciate your patience. <laughs> Just a few episodes down the road, we'll have our first fan winner selected. So that's housekeeping for this week. Anyway, on to the real news. And remember, this is a competition. Miles and I do not know which news stories the other guy is bringing to the table. Um, and at the end, our uh, bent pole analyst and audio engineer, Phil, will declare a winner in the race for Fish News domination. The, the, the floor, the podium is now going to Miles. I'm the leadoff man. And, uh, and yep, I'm going, I'm going full on fish geek here in the first one, just, just to see where it gets me. But that's, that's what I was feeling. And I know there, there, there are some salmon and steelhead junkies listening to this. And right now, as our, our good buddy Skadget Johnson would say, they're in the depths of the Jones. <laughs> and I hope everybody's uh, faring pretty well as we get through. We should through check that in. Season. We should check in with him because he said we he'd should, be back in the see. fall. So we got to make sure he's still okay. I, I think he went up in smoke. Right. Um, but we'll find him somewhere. So I'm going to go full on left coast anadromous with this story. First, I'm going to give a little context for everybody who isn't fully versed with the the migration habits of. Pacific Salmonids. 
Steelhead are rainbow trout that migrate out of their natal rivers as smolt and live their adult lives in the Pacific Ocean, where they get way bigger and stronger than your, your standard river rainbow. And that's why people love to fish for them so much. They return to spawn in those rivers and, and sometimes take months swimming up hundreds of miles against the current to reach their spawning grounds. All right. So most people know that, but fewer people are aware that steelhead don't all migrate at the same time. There are two distinct runs of steelhead. One enters freshwater in the summer and one in winter. Steelhead are not the only salmonid with this dual migration pattern. Chinook, also known as king salmon, do the same thing with a spring run and a fall run in certain watersheds. Now, back in 2017, biologists were able to isolate a genetic difference between the two populations of both steelhead and kings, a variation in two genes, just two genes that determines if a fish migrates early or late, but they couldn't exactly figure out what those genes did. All right. So they got like these two genes determine when you migrate, but they don't know why. Got it. Their hypothesis was that it had something to do with, with metabolism or sexual maturation because early runs are generally smaller and less sexually mature while later runs are, are usually much bigger and more mature. Okay. So now there's this new study that just came out focused exclusively on Kings and, and just recently published in the journal science, but it totally disputes that hypothesis. This study found that those genes have nothing to do with body size or maturity. It seems like the only reason that early and late run fish look so different is just purely timing. The fish that stay in the ocean longer, chowing and all the food just get bigger. It's yeah, that simple. I was gonna say they probably have slightly different food sources. Yeah, yep. so it's it's just those variables. Yeah, is, is what they're learning. And yeah, exactly. And this doesn't seem like much of an aha moment, right? It's like kind of a disappointment. And it's actually a really big disappointment <laughs> for, for some factions of the steelhead and salmon conservation community. While wild salmon and steelhead in general aren't doing that well, early run fish are declining much more dramatically than late run fish. And that's true for both kings and steelhead. Early run fish spend more time in rivers and tend to spawn higher upstream in the river systems. The more time that these fish spend in rivers, the more vulnerable they are. They have to expend more energy. They have to get past more dams, avoid all those hordes of jerk-off anglers like us. They got to deal with fluctuations in water levels and temperature. And, and beyond that, dams block some of those early-run fish from reaching their, their traditional spawning grounds. Sure. So now they're hybridizing with late-run fish, and, and that could be further contributing to their decline. So there's, there's this little study, right, that's like, well, we figured out it's not what we thought it was. And that might be interesting to biologists, but it doesn't seem like it's going to help accomplish what some anglers have been hoping for. And that's to provide concrete evidence to advocate for managing summer and winter runs differently under federal law. There have been these, these, these certain factions that have been pushing for years to categorize both spring Chinook and summer steelhead as endangered. And they were kind of hoping that this might be the thing that helped get it there, but it doesn't look like this exact study is, is going to move that over the line. Depending on your perspective, you could think that's good or bad. You know, every time, again, man, I can't stress enough. Like, I, I am, I'm, I'm not very well versed in this scene. I've only dabbled in it. Um, but the complexities of the whole thing, like, there's so much working against those fisheries. Yeah. It is just one thing after another after another, and 
I've never fully understood that whole spring run, fall run thing, because even though all, all those fish in the Great Lakes are fake, we'll just we'll just call it what it is, there's really no spring runs here. It, it, it's, right. it all times out really, really well. So I guess, you know, what, what I'm really driving at is, is that as manufactured as, as what I know of steel heading is, at least you can sort of count on it to now have to worry about all these different runs and, and what's mixing, like, I don't know, man, to me, it's just head spinning. And God bless all the guys who are, who are into this because to, to follow along and, and have to play in this sort of orchestra of what is not turning out very well, I feel for those guys to have such a passion for a fish that that's, it's just getting more and more difficult to catch. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, right, that you guys would only have one run. The, the systems aren't that long. You're talking about fish over here that migrate so much further, hundreds sure. and hundreds of miles sometimes yeah. those summer run fish go before they reach spawning ground. So, so it, it, it again, theoretically, it makes sense that they would have to enter the systems early to make it to where they need to get to Yeah, in order to pull that off in time, right? So I find all of that fascinating just because it's fascinating. But the difficulty of trying to manage the same fish as two different populations and explain that to all the people who need to understand it in order to make that happen, that's really hard. Right? Like that's where the complexity of this comes into. Like you're managing steelhead, right? Well, no, but they're two different kinds of steelhead. And like you end up kind of seeming just like a wonkish idiot. And and because at the base layer <laughs> level, people are just like, are we saving the steelhead or not? What are we right, doing here? Right, right. That that is the cut and dry answer. And then correct me if I'm wrong, and I don't really know how this factors in, but now we have wild spring run, wild fall run, and then there's hatchery fish all mixed in with this too, yeah, which are their all yeah. whole own things. It's a whole other thing. But here's, I'm going to end this point because I don't want to stay too long on this. The, everything suggests that if we create the opportunity for these fish to spawn, they'll come back just fine. They're, inc- they're amazingly resilient fish. Like if you give them the chance to do their thing, they're going to do it and they'll be all right. We just need to like stop putting things in their way. And, and, and not to get off on it, but just in your opinion, as, as you're more into this scene, is that an achievable thing this day and age with all it's the dams, achievable. all the straw? Is it achievable? It's achievable, but I don't know if, if we're going to do what we have to do to get there. Gotcha. I, I don't okay. know if there's the political will to do it, but I, we, we can do it. We're not past the tipping point yet, but I well, don't know if there's the political will to do what has to be done. As with all things, we love hearing uh, your opinions. So weigh in on it, where you guys think we are on the West Coast with steel. Uh, I, you know, I will definitely, no matter how much, how much you guys struggle, um, I call you guys a tribe the same way I call the East Side Steelhead dudes a tribe. And you know it's a it's a bad segue, but but tribalism is is really the only thing I have to uh, connect to my next story here. So we'll go from steelhead tribes to a tribe that um, I I really can't stand, kind of sorta. So I have a question for you. Do you know what salt life is? Oh yeah, I mean, see you, you do. Actually, believe it or not, you no, you see those stickers on cars in Montana. Like okay. that's a thing out here too. Great. <laughs> then we're okay. Then we're going to be on the same page Great. here. Okay, so. Uh, for those of you who don't know what that is, Salt Life is the epitome of a term people just love to throw around these days, that being lifestyle brand. I hate Ugh. I hate lifestyle brand. and Because it, it just Nothing. means you don't make anything particularly useful or innovative. You just slap a logo on all kinds of cheap shit and sell it for more money, sunglasses and stickers and stuff. Uh, it's just like the new word for an apparel brand. Anyway, Salt Life sort of got out ahead of all that. Okay, and they, they kicked off that brand long before all the, the other brands chasing their tail and success. And I've been told by numerous people in the know over the years that a huge chunk of Salt Life's business is just stickers. 
Okay. Gotta just be. The, just the do, stickers. Do they make anything else? Uh, they do. But, okay, okay. So if I piss anybody off by saying this, I apologize, but I'm going to tell it like it is. Salt Life stickers have sold so well and gotten so trendy and are available in so many places that, that what's kind of happened is they, they've almost become a mark of posers and not legit people who actually live the salt life because if you really do live the salt life like you don't need to tell you're not going to put a, a sticker you on your a truck sticker. that said salt like yeah like if yeah. you run 10 charters a week and don't sleep and smell like clams all the time like you don't need that <laughs> sticker okay that that is just that is just your life so basically nowadays at least out here and i know in florida if you're at a boat ramp and dude pulls in with salt life all over his stuff like he's probably the one that's going to put his truck in the water you know yeah. that's where it's become for the record i i love a good sticker okay i really do but I think what happened there is when you can buy them in gas stations and souvenir stores and every tackle shop and maybe some Walmarts, it's just hard to feel like you're repping something cool and niche anymore. And and like you said, I've seen those stickers in Ohio, Buffalo, Tennessee. It's like, dude, yeah. really? Yeah. So, so, okay, now here's where things are going to get weird. So where is all this going? Why am I setting all this up? Here comes the, no the M. Night, here comes the M. Night Shyamalan twist, Okay. I'm reading from a New York Post article here. A co-founder of a popular Florida clothing brand has been charged with manslaughter and gun possession in the death of an 18-year-old woman found shot at a South Florida hotel. Oh, no. Michael Troy Hutto, 54, who co-founded Salt Life Apparel in Jacksonville Beach with three friends in 2003, was arrested at a Jacksonville hospital. Why they added this, I don't know, but while wearing hospital scrubs and skid-proof socks. Okay, so... (laughs) Uh, <laughs> wow, that's a strange detail. Okay. Right, I, but they put it in there, right? Yeah. So it says officers responded to the facility uh, following a welfare check on Laura Grace Duncan at the Hilton Oceanfront Resort in Singer Island near Palm Beach, where the 18-year-old was found dead from a gunshot wound. And according to the story, she'd been missing since October 26. Now, to be clear, there's nothing funny about this. Like, that, that, is, a, that is a tragedy. But the story actually says it was Hutto who coined the term salt life. And while he was one of the original founders, Hutto had not been part of the business since 2013. Why? Because that was the year he and his original partners sold it for $40 million. I'm talking about 40 million Deutsche Mark here, Bob. 40 million Deutsche Mark. So like you had it all, bro. You, You made a goofy little catchphrase and some stickers and cashed in $40 million. Like, what is wrong with you? Like, that's the dream. And then, and then you're like, you're going to commit manslaughter. So, I mean, again, like, it's just like, I don't know how many of my friends sent me this link. They were like, dude, have you seen this? And it's like the salt life guy. And I sent you, I mean, his mugshot is epic. Like he looks like, like a complete, like, like lunatic, like you'd see the dude slinging shrimp at a bait bar and outside Fort Myers. No, or it's, it's like it's, that. I mean, if you think of the archetype of Florida man, it that's yeah. the photo. That's what yeah. it looks like to me. It's 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 sort of like that Nick Nolte mugshot. Yes, but transposed into a, a Florida man. I don't know how else yes. to describe it. And the only thing I could say about about his photo is that obviously some of that forty mil went to veneers because his <laughs> teeth are beautiful. His teeth are beautiful. The rest of them, he just looks super strung out. So that's a tragic tale. Dude's gonna get salt life in prison. But um, 
My you just God, wanted man. to use that line. That whole setup was just for it's, that line, wasn't yeah, it? it? It's possible. I was either going to do that or, or or fifty to Salt Life, one or the other. Um, I can't not. So again, like it's there's, there's not there's not really a lot to expand on there, other than like holy shit, the Salt Life guy like quite possibly murdered somebody. That's terrible. terrible. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I'm going to rinse that taste out of all of our mouths right now because I just can't. Do it. I can't it. handle that, and I want to I wanna end on a high note. So I'm bringing, I'm bringing something kind of happy and positive here to end this after, like, the horrible date-rapey manslaughter story. That's just – anyway. Okay, so Don't make me one, feel bad for telling the story. No, it's I don't think you should feel bad. It's totally – And everybody life, knows Salt, salt life, life is part of the fishing community. I'm not giving you a hard time. I just okay. – Like, I have the creepies so from that guy. He's terrible. That's all. So I just want to I want to I want to move on. Uh so my last one is is yet another Australian fish news entrance because frankly let's just be honest the Aussies punch way above their weight in terms of interesting fish stories. Maybe just in all stories but certainly in fish stories. And the more I hear from them the more I'm like if I was ever going to leave this country Australia's like got like they they got some cool shit going on. Agreed. 
And I'll apologize to, to our Aussie listeners because you've all probably heard this one, but for everyone else, just enjoy. So the headline I found in the Catherine Times reads, Fisherman fights off croc to reel in $10,000 barra. I mean, how, how can you not read that story? Like, how can you avoid it? There's just, there's so many layers there. I can't wait to hear how it's a $10,000 barra. <laughs> but before I get into the specifics of the story, I, I need to explain the million dollar fish competition. So in 2015, the Northern Territory of Australia started a program to encourage sport fishing participation and tourism. Barramundi are one of the top sport fish in all of Australia and the fish for which the Northern Territory is best known. The other species that this area is known for, perhaps infamous for, are saltwater crocodiles. All right. So more on that later. Keep, keep that in mind. Yeah. I mean, this goes back to that that video. Remember that viral video of that gator coming out? That, oh, that yeah. croc coming out? Like that, oh, yeah. Dude, that made some rounds. So. Yeah, those things are huge and scary, and they eat people. And for fast. real. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, the Million Dollar Fish is a competition. It is not a tournament. So it breaks down like this. At the start of the season, a set number of barramundi are captured, tagged, and released across the, the five primary fishing regions of the Northern Territory. And this is a huge area. This is not yeah. just like your backyard. It's hundreds of miles. Yes. Like hundreds of miles of water, I should say. The competition runs from the beginning of October through the end of March. And anyone with the proper license can go out and try and catch one of these fish. There are different tags, and the different tags are worth different prizes. This year, there are seven fish wearing million-dollar tags, meaning if you catch a fish with one of those, you get a million bucks, period. Damn, on top of that, dude. yeah. On top of that, there are also... You couldn't do this here. Like, we'd kill each other over them. <laughs> and all the fish would be dead. <laughs> there are also 100 fish out there worth 10 grand each. 20 charity fish that earn the angler 2500 bucks with an additional 2500 going to charity. And then five double tag barra. And on that one, the angler gets 10 grand and they get to kick an additional five to a buddy they know who's in need. Which is, you know, look... Wow. I, but And here's the thing. I, I'm i probably just a cynical American, but I, I read this and I immediately assumed there's there's some kind of seedy downside to all of this. It can't just be that up and up and and nice. Yeah. And if there is, I wasn't able to find it. Like I, I couldn't find it in, in the looking that I did. It seems like the Tourism Bureau teamed up with a variety of sponsors to incentivize people to fish more. That's all there is to it. And I love it. Like I just, I love the whole thing. Anyway. Brian Ahrens of Humpty Doo, Australia, I swear wait, to God wait, wait. I didn't make that up, that's the <laughs> town he's from, was out fishing on October 27th when he hooked a nice barra. As he was reeling it in, he noticed a six-foot saltwater croc trailing his fish. He told the Times, quote, a croc seemed very interested in him and had a bit of a go at the fish. As I wound him in, I saw the croc on the surface, chasing it. Like, I'm not trying, I'm not even pretending to do an accent, but like, how how flat and even of a quote is that, right? So as he gets the fish close to the boat, Aaron's sees the red tag indicating this just wasn't like a nice barra or any other nice barra he might want to catch. The thing's worth money. Yeah. yeah. And now like the stakes have changed. I looked at a bunch of stories and there are no more details on exactly how he managed to get the fish into the boat all by himself without losing it or any digits to the croc. It just says like he was all by himself and he got it in. And, and the only quote I could find from Aaron's about it simply said, quote, I was so excited when I saw the red tag, but trying to land it by myself was a bit of a challenge. I was glad I eventually got it in the boat. Like, a bit of a challenge? 
You got like a man-eating crocodile coming straight at your boat as you're reeling this fish in. Like, oh, it was a bit of a challenge. It's all right, though. Dude, dude, the Australians, man, they're just tougher than us. Sorry. How many? uh, It's on the news every week. Like, alligator looked at me while I was reeling in my lore. Big news in Florida. I ran away. Yeah, they ran away. I I I fed it my dog and left. Yeah, exactly. It's just different down there. I have no idea how how Brian Aaron's pulled that off. But he's now ten thousand bucks richer. Money he says he's going to use to pay off the mortgage on his house. So good on you, oh, man. See, good, good on for you. him. Good for him being responsible. If this was a, <laughs> if this was a competition here, some hillbilly would win it and be like, "I'm buying a new Ranger and new mobile home," <laughs> and like your house is collapsing. He's paying off his mortgage. Yeah, that's terrific. Everything that's, about this makes me feel like just just reinforces that Australians are are. are maybe more decent humans than we are. I don't know. That's that's terrific. And and oddly, our, our stories are actually a little bit linked here in a, in a strange way. It's both fishing for money, um, though a, a very different, different tack on this. And I, I find this next story interesting because there's so much emphasis on invasive species these days, right? Particularly like with snakeheads. Everybody wants those dead, right? And, right. And, but one, one argument that snakehead lovers such as myself love to throw back is that in many cases, if the fish you want to save by killing all the snakeheads I mean, they're not native either. You know, established for a long time doesn't make them native. And let's be honest, largemouth, smallmouth, walleye, crappies, they're all predators too. It's just that they weren't around, you weren't around in the early days when they first got established to complain about the introduction hurting, you know, true native chubs or whitefish or bowfin (laughs) or whatever was there, right? So, you know what else is non-native to this country and a hardcore predator? Our beloved brown trout and the state of Arizona wants to see brown trout blood spilled so badly they're willing to pay anglers $25 a pop for every dead brownie that measures more than six inches in the Lee's Ferry stretch of the Colorado River. No way. So this is this is from a story in, in the St. George News. Uh, reading here, the National Park Service and Arizona Game and Fish Department are working with partners and seeking the public's help in addressing the threat of brown trout in the Colorado River. According to a joint press release, the National Park Service at Glen Canyon National Recreation Area will implement an incentivized harvest beginning November 11th. The pilot research program is intended to reduce the growing population of brown trout in the Colorado River below Glen Canyon Dam. The incentivized harvest will reward anglers 25 smackers for each brown over six inches that is caught and removed from the river. Frankly, I'm surprised you didn't grab this one, right? I didn't see that one, but I'm so excited about this story. Yeah, so, okay, so the brown trout population in Lee's Ferry, it says, has steadily increased since 2014. As adults, brown trout primarily feed, duh, on other fish, potentially threatening downstream native species. Now, it goes without saying, if you're a trout dude in this area... You're probably like, bro, river's kicking out some sick brownies. Like, this is paradise, right? Likewise, if, if you're a trout bum there or elsewhere, especially if you think your game is just so dialed, perhaps you're thinking about renting an Airbnb out there for the next few months and raking in a cool, you know, 50K, flexing your streamer skills. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, shit, I might, I might, pull an extended, I might pull an extended leave from Mediator and, and get on this brown trout gold rush no here. Doubt. You know what I mean? Anyway, to get back to the story, the goal of the program is to determine if an incentivized harvest can help manage and reduce the number of brown trout in the Colorado River between Glen Canyon Dam and the mouth of the Pariah River. The initial research into the use of this tool is designed to last three to four years, at which time the program will be evaluated 
for its effectiveness. There is no limit on the number of brown trout that can be retained and turned in for reward within this program. And uh, it, it links you to guidelines, which are pretty simple. You basically just have to have a valid Arizona license. Uh, you do have to fish barbless hooks because this part of the river um, is already a blue ribbon section. And just to paint a clearer picture, okay, the abridged version, and Miles, you, you might be able to add to this. This is more your neck of the woods. Prior to the Glen Canyon Dam being built in 63, this part of the river was muddy and pretty warm and only had native species like chub minnows and pike minnows and such. Dam goes in, water spilling over is cleaner and colder, and over time, this stretch is groomed into a blue ribbon wild rainbow trout fishery. So what's happening now, despite early shocking efforts to stop this, is that the browns in the tribs downstream of, of this section are expanding into the Colorado River at a fast rate. Um, now, in most places, right, where you fish, there's harmony. Best rivers in the world have both species. But here, our beloved browns are, are being called out for being too bullish, too aggressive, and yep. a detriment to the ecosystem. And I've, I just find this interesting and kind of like a hand to like the snakehead crew, because just this past <laughs> summer, there was a kerfuffle over snakeheads in the upper Delaware River where I live that everyone is now worried is going to kill all the brown trout. Ironic. <laughs> is it not? It but, is. My biggest takeaway from this whole thing, like when you look at other invasives, it's like, hey, snakehead states, you you want to pay me for, for and, you know, and every other frog trucker, 25 bones per dead dragon? That, dude, that might make a dent in the population. That might actually flip some catch and release dudes and turn them into snake killers. Because the way I see it, everyone generally loves a good brown trout, but Arizona is confident that despite that, folks will kill them for profit. So oh, yeah. how many how many people out there hate snakeheads? You could probably offer half that price and people will jump. Here's what I'm going to say. I don't think it's going to work. I hope it does, but I don't think it's going to really? work. Really? You don't think well, it's going to work? They've been trying the same thing in Idaho for however many years, trying to get rid of the rainbows on the South Fork because okay. they're a major problem with the cutthroats there. And it has not worked. So I, I'm, I'm skeptical that it's going to work in Lee's Ferry because it's similar like fly fishing culture. Have you ever uh, fished there? On the Colorado? Yeah, in, in in this in this stretch they're talking about. No, I've floated the Grand Canyon and I've fished through there, and I, I think it's one of the coolest fisheries anywhere. But it's also completely screwed up. Like the dams have messed it up. We've killed most of the native. That was suckers, chubs, and pike minnows. Was that's all it was there, and and we've pretty much gotten rid of all of them. But there are a few hanging on for dear life. Well, I still think it's interesting and, and it's and fascinating, really it's just, and I hope it's it just works. Like the, it's just like the dig of like, you know, these fish are killing our, they took our other fish. Dude, they're trying to kill some browns out there. And browns are like so American, but they're not. They not were never American. here. They German were brown trout, people. German brown trout. So that's going to be uh, maybe a little, little point to fight over. And uh, speaking of points to fight over, as soon as we hear from Phil on who has won news this week, our friend River Horse is going to come in for some sagely wisdom. He's going to go down swinging. He might throw hands. You never know. You never know how this is going to go. Listen, I haven't been on a plane for almost a year now. And Miles, when you were talking about Australia, that just really sounded great. I mean, I'd love to get on a trans-Pacific flight, get cozy in a middle seat. I miss it. I really do. Therefore, Miles, you're the winner this week. <laughs> Again, does my criteria make any sense? No. But do you know what does make sense? My lifestyle brand. For only $39.99, you can get your own Audio Eternity sticker. That's right. 
It says Audio Eternity in Comic Sans. Just bright highlighter yellow text on a beige background. You can stick it wherever you want. It looks terrible. It just it looks hideous. Hey now, this is River Horse with some sagely wisdom. Let's talk about the old dust-up, the brawl on the playground. Yes, once long ago, even this peaceful, angelic, poetry-loving Texas tree-hugger, fly-fishing hippie had it out. This is a story about why it always pays to keep your cool, and it's also about a giant cat who could open up an A1 certified can of whoop-ass. It's called The Paw. In college, up in the Midwest, we had a shitty band. It was mainly an excuse to rent a giant house, drink a ton of beer, and dream of groupies. There were a few inherited cats and dogs living with us, and the most infamous of them all was a feline named the Paw. He was roughly the size of a sheep, unsheared. Whenever we put some grub into the food bowls, the Paw would start eating. If any other cat, dog, or human crossed the threshold into the kitchen, the Paw would raise his left mitt into the air, hold it unwaveringly, and wait until the fool backed the hell out of there lest the paw open up a jumbo can of whoop-ass. This happened about once a month, and never failed to whip us all into a frenzy, which of course inspired more beer drinking and philosophizing. We wrote essays on the paw, put a frame black and white 8 by 10 of them in the bathroom, and we all wish we were that definitive of a badass. We weren't. He was an unlikely hero, although we knew deep down that in real life, we can't just go around beating the crap out of each other when we feel like it. Decades later, I found myself on a crowded jetty. I wouldn't have been there or anywhere else with another fisherman even remotely around, except for the rumor that there'd been a slew of 40-pound redfish running it all month. I ambled down a quarter mile in partial shock at how jam-packed and bizarre the whole scene was, but eventually found the last hundred yards or so empty. The tin weight was lined up. I pulled out a thermos of Salvadoran coffee, poured a warm slug into the screw-top cup, and began finding a casting groove with a butter-smooth line and a crab pattern. Then it all went to hell. What I thought was a seagull dive-bombing the left side of my shoulder turned out to be a bait chucker standing less than a couple inches from my elbow, firing a grenade of a sinker with a dead shrimp attached to it for good measure. This is my spot, he said, grinning from ear to ear. I just lost a good one here a day ago. We all have inner fuses of differing lengths. I would offer that these are in direct correlation to what our temperature is at the very moment the shit hits the fan. For example, how about a flat tire? How we respond is inherently relative to that fuse. Are we already on thin ice and late as hell to work? 
Out on the town for a heady romantic evening when the steering wheel begins to buck wildly? Or maybe we've got seven bucks left in our bank account. Or maybe 700 grand. Making it either a gut shot, nut shot, or not even something we feel. I've read some million books. And early on, I went wild for the nature-loving pacifists from Emerson to Thoreau and even Gandhi. These are my people. Regardless, I've known there is a time and place to drop the hammer. I've always known a silverback gorilla is waiting in the wings of any red-blooded soul. But what came out of my mouth surprised even me. You spineless dingus. We're going to flip a coin and there are two options. If you don't haul ass right now, I will raise you above my head and toss you into the water for chum, I said. My friends are right over there, he countered, backing up. Great. That's more chum, I added. He bailed. I kept fishing for a while, but I felt so disappointed. The mojo was gone from the air, and I wasn't enjoying it a bit. Once that happens, it's the point of no return. You might as well roll out. That meant I'd have to walk past my new buddy and his friends on the way out, and it would most likely be interesting. But to hell with it, let's dance, I thought. Having chased waves around the world for years to surf, I've seen the often brutal dark side of territorialism. The strangest and most memorable was watching a surfer actually bite the fins off a non-local surfboard before he held him underwater a while and sent him to the beach. This is roughly the equivalent of chewing through a graphite fly rod. Bon appetit. We all know violence is both pathetic and comedic at its core. There is no place for it on the water. What can I say? My switch was flipped thanks to the perceived lack of etiquette that, with more than a hundred yards of open space, this guy ran down and jacked in next to me. He didn't materialize until I'd been there a while, whether it was his favorite spot or not. On the way past his friends on the jetty, Ready for more amusement and looking them all in the eyes as I walked through, one of them spoke. Our friend is a potlucker, he said, looking at the offender. Yes, he is, I agreed, and kept on going while they all laughed. The tension was gone. I loaded the truck and drove three hours to a lonely and desolate stretch of river where I could get back to the reason I fish, but I thought about it for much of the way. I've certainly learned a few things about myself since that debacle years ago. Regardless of the pause, take no prisoners example, in the end, we all know that anger is ugly, no matter where it happens. And when it happens to a fisherman, the old adage always seems to ring true. An angry man can't catch fish. If such a goofball situation like this, Lord forbid, Happens again, all act differently. I'm pretty sure. Probably. There you have it. That's our sagely wisdom story time. If today's kitty cat tale had a DJ soundtrack, 
we might be listening to Let Love Rule, or even perhaps try a little tenderness. And what do you need to know from all of this? That this world needs us to take care of each other and be there for each other now more than ever. And if you ever want to be alone for some solitude and water, all you have to do is put your boots on the ground and head in deep to wilderness. It's out there for you. Oh, did you feel that? I just wrapped my arms around you and gave you a big old bear hug. I love you so much. Let's fish. Now, I know River Horse to be more of a lover than a fighter, mm-hmm. but I think those dudes were wise <laughs> to step off there. I think, I think they made the right choice. For sure, man. He's got he's got that David Carradine Yoda kind of vibe. You know what I mean? He's one of those like you could just see it takes a lot to push him to the edge, but God help you if you get him there and nudge I, him off of it. I don't want to see that. And and here's what I love about the story that he told, though. Like we've all been there. We've mm-hmm. all found ourselves in an overcrowded fishing situation that just brings out the worst in us. And it ends up leading to some kind of confrontation, right? And and no matter how that confrontation goes, for me anyway, my, my fishing day is ruined. I've never mm. I've never had an altercation on the water and thought, well, I'm really glad that happened. I'm glad that's how my day went. <laughs> like that it just it never goes that way. I'm always I'm always unhappy afterwards. I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever said I'm really glad that happened, but I, I, I disagree slightly because around here, like where I'm from the Northeast, if you let a confrontation ruin your day within certain circles, and I'm talking to you surf guys and salmon guys, right? You, you'd have a lot of ruined days. Mm. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Northeasterners are just schooled in the art of sizing up the group. You know what I mean? Like before you walk out onto a crowded jetty or even like down South, like a pier in Florida, I know the pier guys, some of those dudes, you, you try and get a read on who's already out there, and you're often like, okay, don't be near that guy, that guy, <laughs> or that guy. You've got to be a bit of a profiler, you know? Yeah. That's, yeah. It's I can just see how that. we roll. Yeah, I just, don't, but, I just don't find myself in those scenes. Maybe that's – I just don't have enough exposure, I guess. No, because you live in big sky country, and the whole idea is like big sky, big country. Like there's a lot of – we can all go hang out, and there's lots of room, but like we're just right up each other's ass here, no matter what you're <laughs> doing, whether you're looking for fish – or, you know, a bar that's not crowded. Everybody's just right up each other's ass. Uh, anyway, I said you got to be a profiler. And speaking of profiles, Miles is going to give us one in this week's End of the Line segment about a lore. And there are many of lures like this that at face value you'd think that's, that's an ugly, dumb lure. Like, no way that catches mm-hmm. fish. But this one has been catching muskies since before most of you were a twinkle in your daddy's eye. Fishy, 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 fishy! Well, that's not loud enough, Bert. Seems like more and more anglers realize how addictive musky fishing can be every year. Which I support, because the more people we have obsessing over muskies, the more voices we have calling out for robust management. Musky waters may be more crowded than they used to be, but there are also more muskies than a generation ago. I'll take that trade-off. The more people target muskies today, the zeal these fish inspire isn't new. In 1899... A guy by the name of Frank Suet came into this world, and before his death, his name would become recognizable to just about every serious muskie angler. Frank grew up in Antigo, a railroad town in north-central Wisconsin. Frank's folks owned a tavern that catered to railroad workers, and Frank made friends with many of them while working the bar. 
In his early 20s, he started hitching rides north on the rail cars to fish Pelican Lake, and that's where he discovered muskie. Back then, muskie fishing involved trolling live suckers. When a fish picked up the bait, an angler would have to wait, sometimes more than a half hour, before setting the hook. Frank was enamored with the fish, but unenthusiastic about the fishing. It was inefficient and kind of boring. In addition to working at his family tavern, Frank also owned a trout hatchery and spent a lot of time observing fish. As soon as a trout showed signs of weakness, bigger fish would take advantage of that weakness and go after that. Frank studied the body language of the fish that got attacked and learned the behavioral cues that triggered the predatory response. His takeaway was that a wounded fish would begin floating up toward the surface, but then erratically dive back down a couple feet before starting to float back up again. Frank figured a lure that dove and rose like a wounded trout might also interest muskies, and if he could hang three trebles off it, he could set the hook as soon as a fish struck. So, he started carving chunks of cedar with a pen knife. On one of his early prototypes, his knife slipped, hacking off the tail. Frank, being the type to conjure opportunity from setback, experimented with riveting in a stainless steel tail, which ultimately became the signature attribute of his namesake bait, the Suic Musky Thriller, arguably the first musky jerkbait. Frank started testing his new lure on Pelican Lake sometime in the mid-1930s. People sometimes call musky jerkbait rods pool cues as a joke, but back then, they actually retrofitted pool cues, like real pool cues, with real seats and guides to use as musky rods. The rigidity of those billiard sticks worked well for Frank's bait, and it showed immediate success. Legend has it that Frank caught 30 musky in 30 days, and uh, the word started to spread about his secret lure. Not everyone was pleased, though. A group of locals got together and drafted a petition to the Wisconsin Conservation Department calling for him to be banned. It read, Gentlemen, we the undersigned hereby petition your honorable body and the honorable governor of the state of Wisconsin to hereby issue an order to prohibit Frank Suick of the city of Antigo, county of Langdale, state of Wisconsin, from fishing or taking fish in Pelican Lake, located in Oneida County, until such time whereby other fishermen are able to catch fish out of the above-mentioned lake. We hereby do this in the interest of muskies at large. The petition was meant as a joke, but it still garnered 60 signatures, and at least one person took it seriously, vowing to refuse to pay his taxes until Frank was barred from fishing Pelican Lake. By this point, Frank had inherited his family's tavern in Antigo. He changed the name to Suix Muskie Bar, and it became the nucleus for muskie culture in Wisconsin, boasting the largest collection of muskie heads and mounts in the world. In 1942, the Suic Muskie Thriller went into commercial production. Nearly 80 years later, Suic Lure Manufacturing still produces them. The company remains in the family, and their lures are still made in Antigua, Wisconsin. Over the past couple decades, muskie lure design has come a very long way. You can find baits that are a lot less work to fish than Suics, demand less skill, require far less maintenance and tuning, look more natural and realistic, and are more versatile. But I will never go muskie fishing without a suic in the boat, and I will rarely spend a full day chasing muskies without at least tying one on. So that's all we have, you guys, on this week's episode. But if this were a Sports Center Top Plays recap, you'd see Paul McLean scribbling mediocre poetry in a composition book, a carved <laughs> trout hanging on my wall that's either a freak of nature or a freak of science, and our boy River Horse 
almost curb stomping a bunch of dudes over a redfish spot. And for some reason, we still get to call this a fishing <laughs> podcast. If you want to hear more or less of any of these kinds of things, let us know. Send emails to bent at themeateater.com, and I promise that either Joe or I will read them and do our best to respond. Yep. Give us a fishing report from your area. Send us some photos. Uh, we love hearing from you guys. You know, and stay safe yep. out there this week. If you're fishing the jetties or Salmon River, wear cleats so you don't fall because it's cold out there now. Also, wear brass knuckles so you win. <laughs> and if you're creeping around the woods, fishing creeks, streams, lakes, or ponds, maybe consider wearing an orange hat. Or just do what I do and sing bro hymn at the top of your lungs. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.